You're going to love this. Just love it. is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, KYAQ Central Coast on Queso Cottage Grove and KEPW Eugene on Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Red Bluff, Redding, California, KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deep Program Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing the Globe, five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But I'm back today, Angie Coiro. I host In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these fine stations and streams. I'm a big fan of connecting the dots. So let's play that game, shall we? The rules of logic require that we play it the same way we did with little cartoons when we were kids. You have to go rationally from one to two to three. And if you fake it, if you just slash an irrational line from one to nine, you do get points for originality, but the result won't make any sense. So you hold me to that standard, and I'll connect two stories from the headlines. Story one, the federal government is still shut down because the toddler-in-chief is holding his breath and letting his face turn blue and stomping his little feet because he wanted $5 billion for a wall on our southern border. Never mind the fact that groups as diverse as the Cato Institute and the Migration Policy Institute say it wouldn't work. That part is a conversation for another day. So, story two. A new report says almost 9,000 children and teens have died from opioids since 1999. That is three times the rate previous to that date. So what does one have to do with the other? If you put them together you will see an undeniable vision of the Trump administration's priorities and the priorities of everyone who worships them or enables them. Okay? So let's go to the bigly wall first. The original ask was $5 billion. Now, in the wake of the shutdown, it's dropped to $2 billion, but Herr Herdu says that is as low as he's going to go. $2 billion, period. He has also said that the opioid scourge, he used the word scourge, was a terrible, terrible problem. So he signed a bill that allocates a whopping, wait for it, $500 million to battle that problem. $5 billion for a wall that, at best, only the invested few believe will have the desired effect. 
now $2 billion, not so much for a wall, but to prove that Donnie is still in charge. So there's that priority. $500 million, not even $1 billion, to battle the addiction, depression, and poverty that is leading to opioid deaths. That's nothing. That's a spit in the ocean. So, again, keep me honest here. What if deaths related to illegal immigration are that much larger than the additional money allocated is reasonable? Let's look at that. In June of this year, Trump spat out a figure that has zero basis in reality. 63,000 people, he said, have been killed by illegal immigrants. Of course, he actually said aliens because it's what he does. So Snopes took a look at that, as did multiple outlets. They traced the number back to a blog post from chronic bigoted liar slash Republican Steve King, who apparently just made it up. Now, an activist picked that number up, repeated it to Trump, who took it in wholesale without either bothering to fact check it or, which is worse, knowing it was wrong and sharing it anyway to outrage his base and further his agenda. Either one could be true. Now, Snopes does a really good job of deconstructing the lie, breaking it down into how many murders a day that would mean and what total percentage of murders would have to have been committed by immigrants to make it accurate. Suffice it to say, that balloon was pretty thoroughly pierced. But that leaves us with a problem. The question is, is there any way to justify the billions intended for a wall versus the paltry $500 million to save the lives of people dying of opioids. We have that number where kids are concerned, roughly 9,000 since 1999. Even more, boy, so many more when you factor in all the grown-ups. So what do we have by comparison? Turns out getting a hard number on killings by unpapered immigrants is almost impossible to track down. Studies focus on who gets arrested for killing, now, we all know that's no indication of who's guilty. What we can find out is this. We're going back to the Cato Institute. Quote, the vast majority of research finds that immigrants do not increase local crime rates and that they are less likely to cause crime and less likely to be incarcerated than their native-born peers. There is less research, it says, on illegal immigrant criminality, but what research there is shows that illegal immigrants have lower incarceration rates relative to native-born Americans. Consistent with these findings, immigration enforcement programs targeting illegal immigrant criminals have no effect on local crime rates, which indicates they are about as crime-prone as other residents. Or, as Business Insider summed up this same study, quote, native-born residents were most likely to commit and be convicted of crimes while unauthorized immigrants saw a conviction rate that was about 50% lower. And let's go to the Oxford Research Encyclopedia, which kind of brings us full circle right back to the beginning. Quantitative research has consistently shown that being foreign-born is negatively associated with crime overall and is not significantly associated with committing either violent or property crime. Researchers suggest that undocumented immigrants may be less likely to engage in serious criminal offending behavior because they seek to earn money and not draw attention to themselves. Now, here's the part that Donnie and company hate to hear. Additionally, immigrants who have access to social services 
are less likely to engage in crime than those who live in communities where such access is not available. Conclusion. The United States and other nations that focus on border security may be misplacing their efforts during global crises that result in forced migrations, poverty, and war, among other social conditions that would, quote, encourage a person to leave their homeland in search of a better life, should be addressed by governments when enforcing immigration laws and policy. So what we have here is a firmly documented, increasingly deadly emergency with a problem created by and perpetuated by drug companies. You can see CBS's, or pardon me, PBS's superb documentary on that, Understanding the Opioid Epidemic. Go check that out online. More than 70,000 Americans dead last year through opioid abuse. That's more than even Trump's imaginary 63,000 victims of undocumented immigrants. But the one he's willing to throw $5 billion at, the other, he pats himself on the back for pitifully small $500 million allocation against the real epidemic. Dots connected. This is a sad, sick man to whom real numbers mean nothing. Real death means nothing. It is all about pandering to his base and showing everybody that he's in charge. And he shut down the government to prove it. From the Associated Press, dozens of retired state and federal judges called Wednesday on U.S. immigration officials to stop making arrests at courthouses of people suspected of being in the country illegally. They say immigrants should be free to visit the halls of justice without fearing they will be detained. Nearly 70 former justices from 23 states, including federal judges and state Supreme Court justices, said in a letter sent to acting U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Director Ronald Piello that courthouse arrests are disrupting the criminal justice system. They are urging Vidiello to add courthouses to the list of so-called sensitive locations generally free from immigration enforcement, like schools and places of worship. The Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School helped to organize the letter. Signers included judges appointed by both Democratic and Republican governors. And to wrap this up, the Washington Post has an intriguing article up right now. Trump has repeatedly used the death of Molly Tibbetts at the hand of an illegal immigrant to push his agenda. Her mother, it turns out, opened her home to an immigrant whose parents had fled. Two very different reactions to the same death. It reminds me of those old, what would Jesus do bracelets? Hmm? Back to the shutdown. The Office of Personnel Management is taking some grief for, for issuing sample letters to furloughed federal employees. Letters like... Thanks for our conversation about my not being able to pay the rent. Let me note our agreement here, you know, that kind of thing. They're trying to do something. It's an untenable, utterly unnecessary situation we're in. I'm not going to give them grief for that. They're trying to help. Trump's EPA is still on the job despite the furlough. Stand by for more toxins. From the New York Times, the Trump administration announced on Friday a plan designed to make it easier for coal-fired power plants after nearly a decade of restrictions to release into the atmosphere more mercury and other pollutants linked to developmental disorders and respiratory illnesses. Hmm. Limits on mercury set in 2011 were the first federal standards to restrict some of the most hazardous pollutants emitted by coal plants 
and were considered one of former President Barack Obama's signature environmental achievements. No wonder he hates it. Since then, the article says, science say mercury pollution from power plants has declined more than 80 percent nationwide. The EPA said in a statement, the costs of cutting mercury from power plants dwarfs the monetary benefits. The public will have 60 days to comment on it before a final rule is issued. Call your congressperson. If you want to put this in context, the article goes on to say, this is again the New York Times, during his first year in office, President Trump signed executive orders declaring his intention to dismantle environmental rules. As his second year comes to a close, agencies have set the regulatory wheels in motion to weaken or repeal nearly a dozen Obama-era restrictions on air and water pollution or planet-warming emissions of carbon dioxide, including a plan to reduce the number of waterways that are protected from pollutants, and another making it easier for utilities to build new coal plants. Another tiny slap on the wrist for Wells Fargo. The financial giant with assets of $1.9 trillion faced angry AGs from across the country for, among other little tricks, opening millions of fake bank accounts for unsuspecting customers. Why does anybody bank at Wells Fargo anyway? So anyway, Wells has struck an agreement and will pay $575 million. Just keeps happening, doesn't it? You want some good news? Kudos to Jane Mayer and her colleagues who never let up on dark money journalism. She is one of the brave reporters who, you know, if you read about this, in spite of genuine danger to themselves, keep on telling the truth about people like Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca, who had bought up any number of politicians over the last decade. Here's the story from Bloomberg. Robert Mercer, the publicity-shy hedge fund tycoon whose backing of Donald Trump earned him unwelcome fame, is stepping back into the shadows. Mercer and his family spent just $2.9 million influencing federal elections this year. Just $2.9 million. Less than a third of their outlay in either 2016 or 2014. Combined with the demise of Mercer's political data firm, Cambridge Analytica, and the break with former advisor Steve Bannon, the decline in spending suggests his importance in conservative politics may be waning. According to two people who worked closely with the Mercers, he and his daughter were dismayed by the notoriety their role in Trump's victory brought. Spokesman for the two declined to comment. Now, here's the but, further down in the article. The Mercers have hardly beaten a full retreat. Rebecca Mercer remains on the museum's board and those of several influential conservative organizations. And... Their charitable foundation continued to shower millions of dollars on conservative causes through the end of 2017, the most recent year for which tax filings are available. I will not be silenced, Rebecca Mercer declared in a speech at a charity gala in October, according to the Wall Street Journal. She spoke after receiving an award from Encounter Books, a conservative publisher for advancing American ideals. Yeah, I had to stop reading at that point. If you personally can stomach anything beyond that, it's at Bloomberg.com. Coming up, putting the latest abortion rights victory in context with Robin Marty. She's the author of A Handbook for Post-Row America. Right around this corner, this is the broadcast. 
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coiro in for this holiday stretch as Brad and Desi take some badly overdue time off. Brad, by the way, has pasted a holiday message at the very top of bradblog.com if you want to check that out and send them both an end-of-the-year greeting. Roe v. Wade is the law of the land, but for how long? The sheer number of people working to push it into the past is pretty damned grim. Now, back in July, an NBC Wall Street Journal poll celebrated, quote, the highest level of support for the decision and the lowest share of voters who want Roe v. Wade overturned in the poll's history, dating back to 2005. But the glass half-empty part of that, which we cannot ignore, is the 23% who showed up there saying they want it overturned. And as we saw this week, according to the head of NARAL in Ohio, the wrong legislators work to cater to the minority if that is who they would rather represent. Robin Marty is the right person to talk to about this. It is a timely conversation. I met her through her earlier work at Rewire.News, where she was the senior political reporter. Her focus there and in her work since then is focused on abortion care and access. Robin's new book comes out in the next couple weeks with arguably the most grim title possible, Handbook for a Post-Row America. Robin, it is great to finally talk with you. It is wonderful to be on with you, Angie. Uh, Talk to me about this disconnect. So there's this growing level of support for leaving women the hell alone and Roe v. Wade possibly going the way of the Model T. So how do those two things coexist? Well, I think, honestly, we've always kind of wanted women to be left the hell alone. (laughs) What's going on is the fact that at this point, so much power has been consolidated in these red states, in these red legislatures. And this has been an ongoing process. We watched this start back in 2010 with the Tea Party wave that happened and basically swept many of the state legislatures and swept a lot of congressional districts as well. Through that 2010 moment, um, anti-abortion people have been both passing model legislation through their states, have been um, working on their federal, the attempt to bring judges in that will be sure to uphold abortion restrictions that they're putting in. And they've been working almost a decade now, piece by piece, to try and dismantle the right to an abortion by taking away and chipping at it one step at a time. The problem is now that they've gotten full control or had full control, 
through the White House and then their two years of having Senate and Congress, they've decided that this is the point now that they have a judiciary in place in the Supreme Court that they don't have to take these tiny incremental steps anymore. Now they can just go full blown. And since they don't know how long the bubble to stay in power, especially after watching the midterms and the blue wave, they're going for it all no holds bar right now. Let's talk for a minute about the White House because, you know, Mike Pence is is a real danger. I mean, God forbid he get in in the, in the wake of Donald Trump because he is much more meticulous, much more focused and would inevitably, you can argue with me on this if you like, inevitably wield a lot more concise power than his master yeah. does right now. It, it it I'm guessing it must be to our advantage that, that Donald Trump is angry and disorganized and, you know, chases the nearest shiny thing. I mean, is he in and of himself an actual danger to have in the White House? Um, I would say yes, simply because there's nothing more dangerous than a political leader who really doesn't have any personal views of his own. Mm. At this point, we've learned nothing else about Donald Trump other than whoever flatters him the most is going to be the person that he listens to. And at this point, the anti-abortion leaders nationally through Mike Pence and through their own work, are flattering him up the wazoo. So all the evangelicals who are supporting him and who at this point are basically the only people who do fully, wholeheartedly support him, they're all telling him that he's doing a wonderful job. Everybody on the right is calling him the most pro-life president that has ever existed, even more pro-life than Ronald Reagan. Um, They're doing everything they can to build up his ego, and in exchange, he's appointing them everywhere. He's putting them all throughout the Health and Human Services Department. He's giving them all of the big administration jobs, and he's paying off for them because they've invested everything in trying to get these courts. Well, let's talk about the flip side of this, and that is trying to keep Roe v. Wade in place and trying to defeat the laws that get passed here. Maybe we can use Ohio as a case in point. We see where the law got passed by apparently, as I said earlier, the head of NARAL in Ohio said that this legislature did not have the support of the majority of Ohio voters, which she said is seven out of 10 in favor of keeping abortion access. What is happening in a case like that where it seems we and those those of us who support choice and, and decency for women, where we end up confronting them in court instead of being able to prevent this in the legislature. I just sometimes get the feeling that we're just chasing our tail. Yeah, and Ohio is actually a really great example of all of this because if you look at all of the success that we had in the midterms in getting more blue legislators elected, Ohio was the one point in which that did not happen. Um, Ohio elected more Republicans in their state legislature than they had before, so they are actually going to be at a veto-proof majority, even more so than they are right now. Um, Ohio elected a Republican governor again, um, Mike DeWine. The only successful Democrat that was elected was Sherrod Brown won his Senate seat again. So if you look at that, what you can see from that is there are a lot of liberals in um, Cincinnati and Columbus, et cetera, who are all voting for for the um, blue candidates. But once you get to all of the extremely gerrymandered spots, the districts inside the state, then that's where the Republicans are getting all of their power. So now we are looking at a place where, despite the fact that we have a majority that believes that abortion should be legal and accessible, we have a legislature that overwhelmingly believes that a person should never, ever have access to an abortion whatsoever. 
Which brings me to the title of your book, which is going to be coming out January 19th, Handbook for a Post-Row America. You think that's going to happen? You think we'll be post-Row? I think that it doesn't matter. And let me explain that. Um, We could conceivably keep Roe v. Wade technically in place. We could have a Supreme Court that says, all right, we are not going to overturn that ruling. But what they can say is that the constitutional right to an abortion does not mean that you have a constitutional right to be able to access it within your state. And how this would work is that when we see bills like in Ohio, the heartbeat ban, there could be a Supreme Court that would uphold that bill and say, okay, you can have an abortion before six weeks, before there's a heartbeat. After that, you cannot. And according to that, technically, Roe would still be in place. You still have the right to an abortion. It would just be completely impossible to actually access a clinic before you would be able to hit the gestational limit. I see things like that happening and are going to be working their way out through a number of different states without actually overturning Roe itself. For example, if you look at Mississippi, Mississippi has just one abortion clinic. I could see a law. We already have a trap bill that has been working its way through the court and was stopped that said that you cannot say that a clinic cannot exist if there's not a doctor who has admitting privileges. The courts could now say, we've changed our minds. We think that you should have to have admitting privileges and shut down that clinic in Mississippi. Abortion would no longer be accessible in Mississippi, but abortion would still be legal. There are all these little loopholes that could be done that means that there would be no accessible abortion in the state, in in various states across the country, but Roe could still be upheld. Damn, that's grim. Well, let's let's talk about what's happening within the medical community. And I, I seem to recall hearing this a long time ago, that doctors were shying away from even learning how to do abortions. And for those who do know how to do abortions, they recognize that they literally may be risking their lives. Do you know what's happening on the medical side? Do we still have doctors who are coming into the profession and recognizing this as a right and being willing to defend it? Yes, and there are a lot more of them that are coming into the legal prof- or into the medical profession now and learning to do these things. The problem is there are less schools that are making them accessible for people who want to learn how to do full um, reproductive health care. So when you have more religious schools that keep taking over medical universities, then you find that they're not going to let you do abortion training on site. You have to go someplace else in order to get your training. Um, these sort of things are happening, and so it's limiting the number of doctors that we can have. But we do have a number of programs that are recruiting for more doctors that are trying to get providers out into other states where they may not already exist because of not having medical communities that are open to the idea. So we will have more doctors outside. But one of the things that is actually good about how we medically are adapting is the fact that because more abortion is being done by medication abortion, we don't need as many providers who are able to actually do um, vacuum aspirations, things like that. So as the country progresses more towards doing more medication abortion, we won't need quite as many providers. So at least where they're putting a stranglehold on doctors wanting to do abortions, that might not be something that matters as much in the long run. Well, and of course, when you when you start going to medication abortion, then you run up against the pharmacists who are allowed to say, that's against my religion. I won't do my job. Um, and in some ways, that doesn't work as much because of the fact that our biggest problem is the fact that medication abortion is highly regulated and does not need to be. Um, with medication abortion, the way that it is done right now, a person can only dispense medication abortion and if they belong to a list of people who say that they are going to offer it. That's why you can get it in clinics, but you can't just 
usually go up to your doctor and say, I want to get RU486. Doctors, unless they've already signed something allowing them to license and give it out, are not going to be able to give that to you. So it's a little known fact that you can't actually go and get RU486 from a doctor, um, but you can't do that. You have to go through an actual clinic in, for the most part in order to do that. What you can do, though, is you can talk to your doctor about needing Cytotec and do it just that way. And that is something that a doctor can prescribe. Um, and that is where we're going to see a lot more pharmacists blocking access to it. It, it may sound weird to even ask this, Marty. I'm talking to Robin Marty, by the way. She's got a new book coming out in a couple of weeks, Handbook for a Post-Row America. I, I don't know if this is extreme to even bring this up, but we know that there is a small but powerful group. The Dominionists are one of them. There are some others. And they don't want to just outlaw abortion and get rid of access to abortion. They're, they're actively interested in punishing the people involved, literally jailing the doctors, trying the women for assaulting their fetus, which would have full personhood at that point. Are they a real consideration? Are they too small to even waste energy on? Um, they're actually a real consideration because they are the people who are becoming the prosecutors in the states. They are the people who are becoming the officers who go and arrest women. Um, there was a great New York Times interactive that came out just this morning that is amazing, and it's about women's rights and how fetal personhood is eroding at them. And one of the things that's most important for people to understand is that when we get to a point where abortion is mostly or totally illegal— every miscarriage is going to be examined as a possible abortion. And so that means that the people who miscarry, which are going to inevitably be um, people who are poor, people who do not have access to health care, inevitably more minority communities, these are all people that a prosecutor can come in and come up with a reason why this should be investigated. Um, did, do we want to check and see if this person did drugs? Do we think that maybe this person did not dispose of fetal remains in a proper way? There are all these different ways that prosecutors can use their discretion to try and um, do examine what happened there. And predominantly, from what we've already seen from our police state, they are going to let privileged people go, they are going to let white people go, and they are not going to examine those closely. But when it comes comes to communities of color, they're going to go straight in for trying to figure out, was this potentially an illegal abortion? And if so, how can we prosecute her under any law to the fullest extent in order to discourage more people from trying it? I had two more questions for you, Robin. One is, with the Democrats coming in to take the House, to take the House majority, is that going to make any difference in these prognostications at all? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought not. I want to say that something good is going to happen. About the only thing that I can say that's any good is the fact that we are no longer going to have to worry about anything happening at a federal level. And we were already pretty close there anyway, just because the Senate, unless the Senate was going to really destroy the filibuster, we were not going to get a federal bill to happen. But now with the House, there's definitely not going to be. Um, I, If we had lost the House again, I think there's a very strong possibility that the Senate would have killed the filibuster and we would have seen some sort of federal abortion law, like a 20-week federal abortion ban. That's not going to happen now. And that's a silver lining that I'm frankly really excited about because <laughs> things looked way, way worse before November. And another thing that happened with the midterms is the fact that we saw a lot of states have newly elected 
either all Democratic legislatures or a lot of new Democratic governors in, say, um, Wisconsin and in um, New Mexico who can now do something, hopefully, maybe not Wisconsin, because Wisconsin, of course, decided to limit all of its powers. Yeah. But they can do something now to try and get old restrictions off the books, um, get rid of pre-row um, bills that say that any abortion is bad in case something does happen federally. So we've got, we're in a much better spot than we were in November. The problem is, I honestly believe that Clarence Thomas is going to announce his retirement at some point soon because he's going to want to allow a new, much younger person onto the courts before Trump is possibly out of office. And oh God, there are so many prayers going up to Ruth Bader Ginsburg because if anything happens to her, we are really screwed. Yeah, I actually saw a piece that was criticizing her mm-hmm. about having, I wish I could remember who the source was. And it was all about, well, you know, you, you should have gotten out of there when you were younger. It's pure selfishness that you stayed there. I thank God every day that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has stayed there. And, and just an aside on that. So- no, I know. And there are some people who say that. And I get that. But I mean, the idea that it's it's always, let's be frank, it's always, hey, woman, older woman, step aside. You could you could go away and let other younger people take over. And I think that's just inherent sexism in our in, in our environment as it is. So, Oh, bless you for calling up. that out. Out. Yay, you. <laughs> so my last question for you is just a, a matter of language. I was surprised to see on on your book release page that it, it says that you've covered pro-choice and the pro-life movement. I just, language is really important to me. And I see calling them pro-life because that's what they call themselves. And on the other hand, it's not about life. It's about abortion. Abortion is the key thing. They're anti-abortion. So I just wondered about that choice. It's really interesting. So obviously, I do spend a lot of time with people on the other side. And one of the things that I do is I go to their events, I go to their protests, I sit down and talk to them about their movement. I use the term pro-life movement when I'm referring directly to the movement, because that is how they refer to themselves. Um, The rest of the time, I'm all AP-specific anti-abortion. But one of the things that's really interesting is that the people who are leading the pro-life movement are actually starting to switch away from using the term pro-life as well. And they are starting to refer to themselves as anti abortion. And that is a huge change that Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. emphasizes what is going on and how dramatically that this movement has shifted. Because even they now are saying, you know, we are just against abortion. We are not, we don't need to focus on any of these other things like maternal mortality or that there are children dying in utero or dying after they're born because they can't get health care or they can't get access to enough food. Like they are focused on abortion now, and they are ready to say this is the only thing we care about and the only thing that matters. Boy, that just brings us full circle because it sounds like they've embraced the fact that they have the power to be anti-abortion, even though the majority of people in the country are not. Exactly. Wow, Robin, there's so much there. I I really thank you for all of that. And uh, people are going to look for your book, Handbook for Post-Royal America, coming out in just a couple weeks. Hey, congratulations on that, and good luck with the release. Thank you so much, Angie, and happy to talk to you anytime. Robin Marty. She's on Twitter as Robin Marty. All one word. That's with a Y. By the way, that New York Times piece that she mentioned really is striking. It's a series of stories under one umbrella that collectively tell the scary tale of where we are going. You can check that out. It's in the opinion section under A Woman's Rights. Next on the broadcast, part two of the interview with Navy SEAL James Hatch. That is coming up on the broadcast.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. Brad and Desi are on the road. I'm Angie Coiro in for them most of this holiday stretch. And for the days when I'm not here, they have lined up some best of reprises that you must listen to every day. Yesterday, I played part of an interview with Navy SEAL James Hatch. His body and his mental health were shattered when he and his colleagues tried to rescue Bo Bergdahl from the Taliban. His nonprofit is called Spike's Canine Fund. It distributes protective gear to working dogs and sees to their needs during and after their missions. The spirit of dogs permeates his book, Touching the Dragon. I promised yesterday I'd bring you the rest of the interview, so that's the point where we started. If this were a fictional story, it's almost like the theme of the dog would be throughout because it was that moment when you were on the stand testifying and so many people glommed on to the fact that the only moment you lost your composure was when you were talking about the dog who was lost in the same incident. And then to read the book and to find out how much dogs have always meant to you and that there was a previous incident with with a dog that we'll get into. And it's just, it, it, it almost has this mythical role throughout your life. It does. I feel like I'm somewhat similar, and all of us have this part of us where this kind of blind, you know, innocence, really, and that's what the dogs are. And I struggle with the ethics of that, you know, right now talking about it. You know, they don't understand bullets. They don't understand what's at stake, and we bring them into our human ugliness, uh, and so it does affect me. Mm-hmm. And it will forever, and if it didn't, I would probably be some kind of a monster, you know? Yeah. Well, your early life story is not one of having had a very supportive, beaver cleaver, lovely, wonderful life. And I wonder about having felt a little bit tossed around and not really having had a traditional home, why it was that the military turned out to be the place that you belonged. It's really funny. I remember one day in SEAL training, it was toward the end of it, one of our instructors said, hey, if you came from a broken home, raise your hand. I'd say a good 80% of the guys in there did. So I I think, you know, I'm not alone in that. I was looking for a bit of a family. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if you had to prove, because people say, hey, I love you. They say it a lot. Uh, But what does that mean, really? So if you have to go through a vetting process and then um, you get down the road far enough and you get in a gunfight and you're laying there bleeding to death and people are covering covering ground to get to you, uh, well, that's love. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't really debate that. And then to take it a step further, when that person, me in this case, is a pathetic human who's basically given up to come back into that person's life and say, no, no, we're not giving up on you. That's also love. And that's something that you don't need to have been a Navy SEAL to, you know, exhibit or to, or to to feel. There's that old expression about um, if it's a motion of faith, if you have a building and there's a a steel I beam across Mm. it and the measure of love is who would you cross that I beam for? you know, over like a 40-story building. Wow. Yeah. I'd do it for fun, but... 
But, the, I, but the gunfight thing. <laughs> ah. That actually kind of anticipated my next question because... Ah, we're in this groove. <laughs> I love it. Well, every other piece of your story aside, not everyone is cut out to be a Navy SEAL. I love the story where you kept trying to move forward and then, you know, you ran up against your own stubbornness and you ran up against your own lack of faith in what you were able to do and ended up, you know, scrubbing decks or whatever. Oh, again. Yeah. yeah. And so you gradually discovered that you had that strength and that set of abilities. Right. I did. And it took me doing what I call a penalty lap. You know, I quit SEAL training and I actually, it's funny, it's apropos where we're at, I was... Sent from San Diego after I quit SEAL training, and I was sent to Vallejo, just up the road. But, yeah, I needed that. I think I just didn't have a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. So when I saw, and I go through it in the book, the biggest guy in the class, we're 10 minutes into Hell Week. Hell Week's like the fourth or fifth week. And it starts on a Sunday night, and it goes till Friday, and you don't sleep at all, and they... Uh, they just run you, you know, you're carrying boats over your head and you're swimming and you're logs and, you, you know, they just beat you for a week. They feed you, which is good. Uh, but 10 minutes into it, you know, the biggest guy in the class gets up and he was a great athlete. He gets, I grew up in Utah. I was scared of the water. He gets up. This guy could swim. He'd done the Ironman. He'd finished in the top 10. I mean, he was just an animal. He got up and quit. And I thought, well, if that guy doesn't belong here. I sure as hell don't belong here either. And of course, you know, there were about 10 other guys with me and we all ran up and quit and we all regretted it within an hour, but it doesn't matter. You made a choice. And so you got to live with it. So yeah, I, I got to go back and I was fortunate to squeeze by. I was never the top of the class. I just kind of got through it gratefully. But when it comes time to actually be a member of a team and work hard together to beat people that are trying to kill you, mm -hmm. That's a whole different story. And I really was keen on getting in that position where we were, where I was able to conduct violence. For me, that was a very big uh, driving force behind why I was there. I guess I got caught up a little bit in the physical stuff um, and forgot what I really wanted to do, which was when it's time to go conduct violence, I wanted to be the, among the people that were chosen to go do that. I really liked learning about the drive that you have to, I don't want to say set things right because it's not so global. It's not like you want to get rid of all the evil in the world. But you have a very clear sense of mission about what should happen to bad guys to find true bad actors and make sure that they're not allowed to dominate the scene. Yeah, and you know, I'll be 51 next week and I, I'm still figuring out who the really bad actors are. For, honestly, in the combat stuff, it was relatively simple to mm -hmm. figure it out. I mean, Little girls going to school, getting sprayed with acid and blinded and just, you know, disfigured. The people who do that, they get to meet me, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, I saw, you know, clearly a lot of ugliness. Uh, but as I've moved away from it, I, I feel like some of my actions maybe contributed to causing more of it, actually, at the end of the day. But I have the benefit of hindsight. So, But at the time, you know, I felt like if I got tasked with going to your house at night, you had it coming. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes the way we conducted ourselves was, the blame is on me. That wasn't necessarily always the right answer. I'd say 95% of the time it was. But I mean, just think about it. Uh, cruise missiles are a great example. Uh, or let's just use drones. You fire a drone, it hits a, a home where the, the intelligence says that there's bad people or you send a, a, a crew like mine in, 
And, and we're really good at discriminating between who needs to get shot and who doesn't. But even us, we still make mistakes. So mm. if you're a 15-year-old young guy and you see people come into your house and snatch your dad and take him or they decide to fight and you kill him, what do you think? As a 15-year-old, I know what I'm never going to forget. Right. And then does that continue? And I remember early on when I, in my career spending time in Bosnia, I remember a guy had a video of some of the atrocities that were carried out. And he said, I'm going to make sure that my kids see this so they know they never forget where they stand, you know. So when does it end? Like, you can't kill your way out of it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Spike Canine. Okay. One of the things about losing Spike was in a heavy desert area where the humans are wearing so much stuff and carrying so much material, there wasn't really any protection for a dog. He didn't have a bulletproof vest. Mm -hmm. He didn't have any. And, and you looked at that situation and thought, this is something that you can do something about. You know, the, the truth is we couldn't really help them out with the type of body protection they would need in that environment because of the kind of guns that were being used. But I could help out dogs here in the States that worked with the police departments because the type of guns that are often used in violence in the United States, they're pistols, they're handguns. So the protection for uh, dogs against that type of weapon, it's not as heavy. And so it's viable. And police dogs often, they spend a fair amount of time in the back of the car until they're needed. So they're not out. Like we would walk 10, 12 kilometers occasionally through the mountains to get into a fight and then fight and then have to walk quite a ways back out to get to the helicopters. So the dogs would not have had the stamina to wear the kind of heavy-duty stuff that we would have had to have for them. However, there's other technology out there that we've been able to kind of help. And there's some dogs actually in places in Afghanistan that I served right now that we're helping, three, three special forces dogs that are over there. But the police dogs, we've helped out quite a bit. And um, because of my uh, interaction with the police the night that I got I owe two specific groups in my mind, uh, aside from my friends, the close friends and family. I owe the police because they could have, they could have come at least give me a good tasing, you know what I mean? And I don't know that I would have been so healthy after that. You know, mm -hmm. they could have arrested me. They, I mean, I had it coming for sure, but they chose to handle me in a specific way. So I feel as though I owe them. And I also owe the dogs because I'm here because the dogs, they saved me on a bunch of occasions, including the night that I was wounded, but. As it turned out, it was a police dog that helped me focus on that. And he was killed. There was a domestic violence incident. A guy had uh, harmed his wife. She escaped from the house. The police surrounded the house. They tried to negotiate over and over and over and over. Uh, eventually, he came out of the house, was waving a gun around, and he was moving towards a... There were some guys behind another house, some police officers. He was moving in that direction. So they sent the dog to stop him. And the guy took his pistol and shot the dog twice. His name was Krieger. And the guy, the police department, it was the same police department that came to my house. The guys knew I had been helping them out. And they said, hey, Jimmy, would you come to the vet clinic? Because it was about three in the morning. Because Krieger, that's the dog's name, had been killed. And I knew his handler really well, an officer named Ryan. And uh, you know, they asked me if I could go see him. And it was, so you stack Spike and, and Remco and some of the other dogs that I worked with. Each of the stars in, my, in the logo of Spike's Canine, there's four stars, represent a dog that I was with that was killed. So stack all those up and then see that dog laying there on the table with the flag across him. You know, combat combat happens in our own communities on the regular. You don't have to be in Afghanistan or Iraq or Colombia or, you know, and combat's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So after that, I knew, you know, that that was a facet of our mission that we really needed to concentrate on. So 
a lot of people don't know this, but more more police canines are killed in heat related incidents than with violence with criminals. So uh, the officers are busy. They get caught up. The dog's in the car, the air conditioning on. The officers are caught up doing something that they don't need the dog for. The engine dies or the air conditioner breaks and there's the dog perishes. So there's a there are a couple of different types of systems, but one of them is called a hop and pop and or a hot and pop. And they when the temperature reaches a certain level in the car, it'll send a notification to the officer. And if the officer can respond to it, great. Uh, if, if not, it rolls the windows down. And if the temperature continues to climb, it'll pop the door so the dog can get out. So we've done a lot of that. So we've helped a little over 500 and I think 80 dogs. Now we're in 44 states. And uh, that's Spike's spirit continuing on. That's the only way I can exercise that from my soul. There was the police officer who used that in a way that it hadn't originally been intended for. Yeah, that was, and I remember getting a call. So the hot, the hot and pop has a key fob and this guy pulled some, a car over when he got up to the car, some people piled out of the car and started to give him the business and they were going to drag him off in the woods and kill him. So as they're giving him the boots, he's on the ground, they're kicking him and beating him. He pops out and the dog came out and he jumped out. The dog started whipping their ass, and it changed the whole, <laughs> you know. That's the thing about the dogs. When the dogs get in a fight, it's a little scary. You know, the hair missile. It's like, what do we do with this? You know, it's hard to punch them. They're moving fast, you know. So, yeah. Let's talk about some of the insights that you bring to the book about warfare, about the way government conducts warfare. Um, somebody wanted to know specifically about an, uh, something you brought up later is what situation, for example, would have a little girl going to school attacked with acid thrown at them? Another thing that I think a lot of us wouldn't understand that there are people in warfare who will chuck their children in front of you so they can get away because they don't want their jihad interrupted. Can you help us to understand a little bit what kind of motivation is going on there? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I don't, if I did understand that, it would scare me. On my way here from the hotel, my Uber driver was from Turkey. And I said, hey, Ramadan Mubarak, because it's Ramadan right now. And he said, wow, you know, you know, so we're talking. And he asked me about tattoos and soldier and all that stuff. And I said, hey, you know, and I was explaining that to him. And he said, that's just a sickness. And he's right. You know, um, he was a Muslim and he belonged, you know, I'm a big fan of the United States of America. And nobody should be scared to practice their religion. here. You know, it's just the way it is. Uh, but I asked him about that. I'm like, what is that? And he said, well, you know, that's just a sickness. It's just a sickness. I don't know what we can do about that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't feel bad killing those guys. Question from the audience, to what degree is it helpful to do a book tour and retell your story, and to what degree is it painful and challenging? Uh, I believe it's good if there's somebody in here who has, and you know what, let's be honest, we're not, we're not in the mental hospital, but we're not that far from it, right? <laughs> no, really. Like, if life's going great for everybody in here, because, you know, we all compare our insides to everybody else's outsides, right? But if there's somebody in here that's struggling, or... If there's somebody in here who has a member of their family or somebody that they're close to that's struggling, I would hope that they would take the example of the fly fisher and the mechanic, the, the friends of mine who in, injected themselves in, into my life in spite of my pleadings to just leave me alone. Uh, if that That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And look, here's the thing. Uh, I supposedly went through this really hard. No, the training was hard. It sucked. It was difficult. And combat is hard. And uh, war is hard. Uh, life is hard. Uh, but if somebody who has all these alleged accolades, who's been through all of this training and all of these difficult experiences can stand up and say, man, I was, I just wanted to die. I didn't want to be around him. I didn't think I had anything to offer. Maybe that'll help somebody else.
And I think that's worth something for sure. And you've told that to people that you've been helping as you let them know, you know, if you don't stick around, you don't get to find out how you could help. Yeah, that's one thing I've said. I've also said, you're dealing with this right now. And do you think you're the last person that's going to deal with this? You're not. And how are you going how is that next person that's going to deal with the thing, the horrible thing that you're, that you've gone through, that you've endured, how are they going to, who's going to be there to help them? And who are you to take yourself out of that game? You know, look, we've made an industry out of words like resilience, stigma, resilience. Look, resilience is a very individual quality. Nobody does shit in this world by themselves. I don't care how tough you are. I was a pretty tough guy. And I couldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for a lot of people. Some of them were strangers. Some of them were friends. Some of them were family. We just need to love each other. It's that simple, man. And guys like me saying love, ooh, no, really. That's what it is. It's not an industry. It's not, I need to go to this, I need to go to this six-week course on how to love. No, it's natural. If you see somebody that's suffering, help them out. If you're suffering, ask for help. If you're not in that position, which I completely understand, Go to somebody and say, man, I just don't know what to do. Or if you're somebody looking at, hey, somebody comes to work and they're breathing zoo. They've been drinking. They've been drinking themselves to sleep. And you're like, Are you okay, man? You know, the stigma is just cowardice. I don't want them. I don't want that person to be uncomfortable. Right? I don't want to create an uncomfortable situation. Well, that doesn't really get anybody anywhere. Plus, they're already uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Someone wants to know in the audience what you would say to young people who want to be elite fighters. Uh, I would say follow your dreams, man. But one of the things that doesn't exist is what what does it the backside of that look like? What does it look like on the other side when you've done those things? It doesn't stop there. So play the tape all the way through. That's a great thing in recovery, right? Play the tape all the way through. Uh, look at me, man. I'm, I've got pins in my shoulders. I've broken my back. I've got, you know, bullet holes in me. Those things can be hard. And it's, you know... I was a young guy, and I, ah, it'll never happen to me, <laughs> right? Uh, but as a young person, you, you know, I think it's good to have something that you want to strive to do. And if it's difficult, even better, you know? Mm -hmm. One of the things that you learn in SEAL training is that when you think you're done, you're at about 40%. You get another 60% in you. And I think that's a good thing. And if you can find, and the ranger school is the same thing, ranger school is tough. They just don't, they don't even feed you there. They keep you up and make you run around. I mean, those guys are really tough. So there's a whole, a whole array of places you can go and get, you know, get your butt kicked. If, <laughs> if you're into that, great. I do speeches for different police, you know, organizations. Whenever I give a speech to like a police academy, uh -huh. I'm 51 years old and I can't remember a tougher time to be a cop. Yeah. Really? And these kids are showing up. Okay. That's brave. You know, there's a plenty, there's plenty of places that you can help. You can be an asset for sure. Do you still miss the service? I miss my friends and I miss, and this is going to sound somewhat sick, I guess, maybe to some people, but I miss the actual fighting because in a gunfight, there's no personality conflict. There's no agenda. Well, there's one agenda. You know, your greatest fear in a gunfight isn't that you're going to get hurt. It's that you're going to mess up and somebody next to you is going to get hurt, right? So that's a pretty cool place to be on. I call that a clean, shining edge of time. Mm -hmm. It's clean, man. There's no... The whole situation itself is a ugly human thing, but in that space, you can, you can feel good. And I did, so I miss that. I don't miss the rest of the uniforms and all the silliness. Oh my gosh, it's just ridiculous. 
James Hatch. His book is Touching the Dragon. I'm going to link to the whole interview on the Brad blog. And that is a wrap for today's Bradcast. I am happy to be coming back after the turn of the year. Until then, travel safe, be well, and good luck, world. Thank you.